everybody. Welcome uh, to a brand new episode of The Cinephiles Live. This month's The Cinephiles Live episode, we do one every month for you here on The Cinephiles YouTube channel to promote our Cinephiles podcast, but also to take a little bit of a break from doing these podcasts to have some fun with you all and interact with you all. And today we are jumping into Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in our season of Tarantino. I am the outlaw, John Roca, joined as always by my co-host, Steve Morris. How are you, Steve? I'm good. And you know, the other thing I love about these live shows is that yeah. we get to interact with our fans and we get to hear their opinions. Plus, we get to just, I don't know what's going to happen, John. Like, yeah. I never know exactly where these are going to go. And that's always a lot of fun. Yeah, live stuff is always fun. I, I, I am always better live. I'm always so much more fun. I'm less judgmental of what I'm saying or what I'm doing. And I just kind of rely on my own instincts when I'm live. So I love doing these shows as well with you and having fun listening to the fans. And thank you to the 15 of you who are already joining us right off the bat. Great to see you all. Hope you've been enjoying our season of Tarantino. Steve, it's been a fun, fun kind of exploration of, not kind of, it's been a fun exploration of Quentin Tarantino, our conversation to start off this season of Tarantino and then getting into Reservoir Dogs with writer, uh, screenwriter David McKenna. It was a really great conversation we had with him. Uh, and we've got Django Unchained coming up with our guest, uh, Jay Washington, uh, who is going to be joining us, coming back to the show after a wonderful uh, time he did with us and Winston A. Marshall on Black Panther. So great to have Jay come back. And we've already recorded part one, and we can't tell you enough. We can't stress enough how much you're going to enjoy this. Jay's been a fantastic to come on, and he already from part one, he's been incredible on the show. Um, what are you, what, what you feeling now is we're kind of need, we're kind of halfway through, um, or just about halfway through our season of Tarantino as we're about to talk about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood on this show. What is my feeling now? Well, first of all, I agree with everything you said about our conversations with David McKenna on Reservoir Dogs. I just yeah. love that, particularly the th I could just, I, I know you know this too, is there, it's not that I feel like we ever put out a bad show, but there's right, sometimes right. when we're talking and and we could just go like, this is something special. And that's how yeah. uh, the Reservoir Dogs conversations felt. And that's how my our conversations with Jay Washington felt. Yeah. Or our first one. So I, and, and particularly, I know, like, I can't wait to get to, to part two and talk more with him. Yeah. That was fantastic. Yeah. My feelings about Quentin Tarantino <laughs> continue to be strangely mixed. And today <laughs> will be no exception whatsoever. Yeah. The yeah. first thing is the guy's a genius. And the more we study him the more i go wow i mean this yeah. guy is right up there with all with the great filmmakers of all time that's the first oh thing. yeah 100 percent. and and this is what his um ninth movie so this is the one that's supposedly the penultimate film in his uh resume and supposedly there'll be a 10th and he's supposed to retire so i'm saying supposed a number of times because a lot of people don't believe that he is going to retire um but you know we talked about that on the show as well but he is getting up in age does he want to keep staying on movie sets he's got a family a lot of conversations and certainly this film took a long time to gestate before he finally got it up on screen and it was a hell of a cast um oh it had 10 oscar nominations it won two oscars it made 374 million dollars worldwide which really is kind of surprising for a Tarantino movie, because you kind of still default to the style that Tarantino uses is very independent movie style. We've never seen him go mainstream in terms of the approach he takes as a filmmaker. Everything has always been had that kind of independent feel, even if it's a long movie, as this movie is, or as other movies that we've uh, talked about or seen, 
he still feels like an independent movie director, you know, where others have kind of leapt up, you know, these smaller independent movie directors come out with their first couple of features and then leap up into a Marvel movie or leap up into a Star Wars film or leap up into something in a franchise. Tarantino has very much kept his own company and kept his own uh, counsel in creating the films that he's created. And his style has remained the same, although it has expanded his style in essence at this foundational core has remained the same. Uh, am I off base or what do you think about that? Steve? I, I think you're right on base. And I also think I just want to go way back to the beginning of your yeah. comments to compliment you and say, I really appreciate the fact that you use the word penultimate co correctly. Yeah. <laughs> that is a word I hear all the time being used incorrectly. So yeah. that was excellent. Um, <clears throat> no, I think that's a remarkable thing about Tarantino is that he never took that yeah. Hollywood temptress money. You know, he yeah. never went sure. I'll go make the big budget. He's making Quentin Tarantino movies. And it's funny because I understand what you're saying about his style still being that independent movie style. I mean, these are $150 million. I don't even know what the budget on uh, on Once Upon a Time Hollywood was. It was big. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> in terms of it was box 90 to 96 million is what the estimated okay. budget was. Yeah. In terms of the box office, I think it's remarkable because these are hard R's. Yeah. These are movies that are tons of swearing, tons of violence. Yeah. They are not for everybody. And when you make a movie that's not a, you know, four quadrant film, well, then everybody that you make it for needs to show up. And I think they do, you yeah, know? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and as I was saying here, $377.4 million is what this film made uh, overall here while it was out in the box office for as long as it was. There have been a number of, <clears throat> excuse me, iterations of the film that have come out in different uh, formats, you know, 4K steelbook all these different formats that have come out there have been deleted scenes and being a part of this and it's a really interesting story um and before we dive into the story dive into too much a little bit of business we need to handle the first thing is Streamlabs and super chats are open since we're live i just pinned the Streamlabs address in the chat we have a super chat already from jmb which i'm going to read in just a second so if you want to send in support this morning, you want to send in some questions, thoughts, or comments that you want to make sure get want to make sure gets read uh, by us, please send them in through Streamlabs or Super Chats. Again, the Streamlabs address right there on the screen and above our heads as well, but also pinned in the chat for you all to do. And the second thing is this: if you all are not a member of the Patreon, we would want to we want to encourage you very strongly to go and be a member of the Patreon. Patreon.com slash the cinephiles. We've got so much new stuff that we've been doing for our patrons, watch-alongs, Q&As, things of that nature. We have created certain things that are available for you all to enjoy as patrons, along with being a part of Suggesting Shorts. And if you go to the highest tier, you can suggest a movie for us to discuss. And sometimes some, some of you all send a little bit extra so you can move up the chain to have your movie chosen. So that's always in play as well. So, you know, we're not above taking the Hollywood money a little bit, but still retaining the foundational core of who we are. But please head on over to the Patreon to support us as we want to expand and do more with this podcast and with this show. First of all, I must correct you, sir. Patreon yeah. is not the Hollywood money. Patreon <laughs> is not the corporate true. giant That's overlords. True. Patreon is the grassroots fans You're right. that love the You're show. Right. Um, I also think, by the way, you mentioned our watch-alongs. We have not yet picked a watch-along no, no. for this month. Right. Maybe by the end of this live show, with the help of our fans in the comment stream, we yeah. might be able to figure out what that watch-along should be. Yeah, yeah. And those have been a lot of fun. We just did my favorite year last month. So, yeah, oh, come on in and suggest a film. Uh, and that film was about old Hollywood. This one is about a little <laughs> more recent, but somewhat old Hollywood as well. And as I said, we're going to 
dive into it. But first, let me read the super chat here from Jay and Bases. Hey, Stephen John, always such a blast when you guys go live, and thank you for all that you guys do. It's oh, very nice. Thank you. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's jump into this film here, Steve. This one we wanted to really talk about because we can't do well. We still have our 10 year rule. So arbitrarily, we can't uh, quite dive into Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But we felt that this is a film that we should discuss. And as I mentioned earlier, my favorite year being uh, about a time in old uh, Hollywood or old TV back in the 1950s. This is the 19 uh, late 1960s into the 70s. And um, how Hollywood was kind of transitioning, how our country was transitioning. Flower power was essentially dying. The Manson family was coming up. There was going to be serial killers in the 70s. There was going to be a lot of terrorist acts, both internationally and domestically. There was a lot that was going to happen, that was about to happen here when this film takes place. And this film focuses on two men here played by uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt, Cliff Booth. That's Brad Pitt and Rick Dalton. That is Leonardo DiCaprio and their relationship in Hollywood as Rick Dalton's star is starting to, starting to set and him wanting to still stay somewhat relevant in Hollywood. Cliff Booth, that's Brad Pitt's character playing his uh, um, stand in and his stunt double here uh, uh, pretty much needing Rick Dalton to stay employed. So he can stay employed. They, we see a numerous scenes with them meeting actual real world people from Hollywood. And one of the people they do meet is Sharon Tate. Uh, and of course, everybody knows, or if you should know the history of Sharon Tate here, Sharon Tate, a young actress who was uh, with Roman Polanski at the time uh, and was murdered by the Manson family. Very, very famous and grisly murder there. And uh, th that is played by Margot Robbie in the movie. Uh, and we see how this all progresses. The Cliff Booth comes in contact with Manson family, with the Manson family, with real people from the Manson family as characters in the movie, and what happens at the end, a very brutal ending when they decide to not kill uh, Sharon Tate and try to kill Cliff Booth, and by extension, Rick Dalton at, at his house, So and what happens there. So a lot happens in between the lines, but that's a basic premise of what happens here in this movie. What are your thoughts about Once Upon a Time, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, as you maybe think about it again as we revisit it for this live uh show here steve it was <clears throat> it was so interesting rewatching it because i think scene to scene moment to moment it's all great oh like, yeah every single scene is just beautifully done beautifully acted yeah this might be in some ways m my favorite film in terms of cinematography for quentin tarantino wow. okay i just think it looks amazing i think what one of the things that's really interesting to me is we've talked as we've been talking all month about yeah. Tarantino's obsession with seventies films and that right. era. Mm -hmm. the, it's so interesting. It's like, Oh, this is his first movie. I think that actually takes place at that time with that. I guess death proof being the exception, right? you know, but like that where he really is digging into that era. And man, I got to tell you the particularly up until things go South, <laughs> the, the world of the seventies is so cool like you just want to hang out there like when they, we yeah. show up at the big hollywood party with steve mcqueen it's like well this is the coolest party you could ever go to you yeah. know the, and there's so many scenes that are just so beautifully filmed and i i now can say very specifically what i find really weird about this movie okay which is okay. that it lacks narrative thrust which okay. is the the idea that in almost every movie and certainly in all the other tarantino movies i can think of i know what i'm worried about 
Like, I know what to be yeah. stressed about. I'm stressed if Mr. Orange is going to get caught and who's the person who turned on the Reservoir Dogs? Is Marcellus Wallace going to catch up with Bruce Willis? How's the date going to go with Travolta? Is he going to get mm. save her life and get her home? Like, I understand what I'm worried about. I'm worried about the Nazis. I'm worried about the Jew hunter. Is Django going to get the girl? I understand what the movie's about. In this movie, I literally have no idea what the movie is about in really? terms of what is coming what am i worried like what am i worried about with cliff i don't yeah. know you know because the, the you know when we show up at the manson's ranch you know that's like really amazing scenes and yeah. stressful but i didn't know that's where i was going if i didn't know that it was the mansons you know what i mean yeah, yeah, like yeah. i don't i don't know what i'm worried about and throughout the whole movie as a whole like why am i watching margot robbie watch herself mm. in a movie like why am i what is the tension around this and there isn't really one i love watching her i think by the way i think margot robbie is as sparkling and charismatic the, the person that that i put up with that i was like i think she's as sparkling and charismatic as young brad pitt was in the yeah. early 90s you know what i mean where you just i can't you just can't not watch her even though it's literally a movie of someone watching a movie of themselves there's nothing going on but it's yeah. fascinating to watch. That's so. That's my general feelings about the movie. Yeah, it's a interesting point you bring up, Steve. Because I mean, you've got two different narratives going on, and then a couple of subplots going on, if I can use that term correctly. Because um, you certainly I think have. You Cl did. Okay, hopefully <laughs> yeah, you have Cliff Booth's uh, as you mentioned first here. His thing, you know, his multiple adventures that he goes on here in this movie, on the times that he's not on set for Rick Dalton are interesting. And then you've got the whole idea of. He's having trouble working, getting stunt work because he might have killed his wife with a, uh, I don't know what you call it, a harpoon gun, whatever the hell that thing is spear, called. Spear fishing gun. Spear gun, fishing yeah. gun, sure, sure. Uh, and then you've got the Rick Dalton situation of this, which is, I think, very reflective of Tarantino in a way. Mm. I don't think Tarantino is Cliff Booth. I think in Tarantino's mind, he is Rick Dalton. Like, okay, you know, people aren't loving my movies in the same way that they did before. They're picking them apart a little bit more where I, I need to hmm. you know, where am i going next so maybe this was a little bit of his own and we do that and we know that with these directors who make films that are very personal to them and certainly tarantino has done that with almost every one of his films it doesn't mean that he's been reflected in the film or he's put himself in most of his films and he is in this just a little bit um but i see like this is almost like a, a fellini thing or if you people saw bardo recently where it seems like that's inaritu as the main character or even the most, even Fablemans, where Spielberg's legitimately putting himself as a, as a young man at the center of that film. You see here, it feels a little bit like this is Tarantino confronting this. And he's got that, you know, that scene where, where Dalton is in the trailer yelling at himself for fucking up the lines. Maybe that's Tarantino yelling at himself for fucking up a scene or fucking up the writing of a, of, of a scene and then coming back out and absolutely knocking the doors off of things with a performance that leads to him getting... Uh, these Italian spaghetti westerns, which uh, Pacino's character as his agent was trying to get him on, and then we have the young actress who kind of guides Dalton as well as the as the voice of these people who are maybe she represents the people who always loved his work and will, uh, the new generation that's discovering his work rather that is still in love with his work and still learning from his work. So I think there's little things that you could maybe symbolically take from the film that are reflective of Tarantino. But you're right, there's not this thing until the manson family shows up there's not this right. thing and even until they show up in the car that's when you're like oh we're going here right. and you have to do the homework 
I think that's the difference here for this <clears> film and just about every other film Tarantino's done. You have to come in with the knowledge of the Manson family, the knowledge of what they did to Sharon Tate to have that tension be with you from the opening minute on to the rest of the film. Several things. The first yeah. is like, I, what I realized watching this time is like yeah. the way it is linked isn't in terms of plot, but yeah. what I was thinking is like, oh, actually thematically this all works really well because the thought that occurred to me watching it this time, I was, I was like, okay, you have the little girl and she is heading yeah. towards stardom. Yes, right. She's have, on her way up. She's on her way up. You have um, Sharon Tate who has peaked. She is she is arrived. Yep. She is yep. here. And then you have Cliff and and Rick and they're on their way they're on their way out. Yeah. And so like this seeing all these people that are questing after the same thing in their way and yeah. with the girl it's totally pure. You know, she's the she's the pure artist and yeah. with Sharon Tate she is the pure movie star. Mm -hmm. And with Rick he doesn't know who he is anymore because he doesn't have those things you know they've kind of fallen away that's the first thought second thought and this is so dumb but you made me think of a thing that i just had never occurred to me which mm. it should have which is it never occurred to me that that rick could represent tarantino because mm. in my mind tarantino is so arrogant he's just continually like i never see him and it never occurred to me until you were talking which is so stupid that that arrogance is must be covering up a deep insecurity oh you know sure. I, 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 why, John, why did I never think of that? Well, I, I think we get to, because I think we buy into these, the myth building that goes on and the narratives that go on. And, you know, I'm at this age now where I don't want to see or read profiles in magazines or on websites about actors or about directors or producers or what have you, because it's always PR controlled narratives and they're not real. They don't really tell you the truth. The you know how we you know rom coms yeah. have kind of gone away because people have gone to therapy and realized rom coms are actually detrimental to people and how they view <laughs> relationships, the reality of what relationships and right. going after somebody and being in love with somebody is really about. I think the same thing must be done eventually to all these puff pieces about these creators and writers and narratives or writers, uh, uh, sorry, producers, executives, what have you. They, they all that the myth building must be destroyed once and for all, and I think we buy into that sometimes because Tarantino does come off, uh, you know, like I know it all, I've got all these movies, I got all right. this knowledge, blah, blah blah. But Tarantino doesn't measure himself by the bar that we, a lot of us, measure ourselves by. Tarantino exists in a whole nother level with his abilities, so therefore, he's judging himself against the greats like John Ford and Orson Welles. And right. Fellini and Antonio Nini and all these great directors that have come before him, Billy Wilder, what have you, and even maybe some of the great 70s directors that he has been influenced by to create the movies that he's created, because they all have a 70s vibe to them. So I think naturally he has a level of insecurity. All artists have insecurity. I don't care. Sure. I, I'm so like over, they can wear sunglasses, barely speak, look all cool on camera. They all have insecurities because if nobody watched their shit, they wouldn't be anybody. And so it's a, it's an element of that. And so I think with Tarantino for all his talk, and I think the reason he's so gibberish and talks all the time is because that's a, a way to kind of control the narrative and make it clear that he is the most knowledgeable person in the room. And you must acknowledge that in some conscious or subconscious way. It's funny. I, I would, and I believe that I can say that everything I'm about to say is 100% accurate and that I get it from my many degrees in psychology. Oh. And that I, 
definitely yes. can tell you exactly what's going on, Quentin Tarantino. But I would actually peg his insecurity in a different place, mm. which is that I don't think it's the it's the great old directors that he's trying to please, although I'm sure he is or match up to. I'm sure that's true. I'm not saying yeah, it's yeah. not. But what I actually think is what the stuff that we learned about him as a kid, it's the kid who wants those older guys he's hanging out with to think he's cool. Yeah, good point. Sure. That is he's yeah. he's because he, that is what there's that story we talked about of him going uh, one of his mom's african-american boyfriends takes him to the all-black theater yeah. and he hears everybody yelling at the s- screen and he hears as a nine-year-old kid people who d- turned on the movie yelling suck my dick and then he as a nine-year-old kid <laughs> yelled suck my dick and everybody laughed and the guy he was with like gave him the thumbs up and that was one of the great moments of his life yeah and i think that's that he's that kid still trying to shock and amaze and make us laugh you know in that way he's still trying to be cool still trying to be cool yeah 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 and tarantino (laughs) will never be cool i don't mean that his movies aren't cool i mean him as a person is a film nerd you know yeah yeah he's too talkative to be cool that's just kind of how it goes but he's cool he's cool in a different way he's not cool in the standard way and i think that's it uh, and yeah. he can make Brad Pitt look as cool, like super cool. That is ultimate and cool in that yeah. movie. And please don't be, and Pitt's got insecurities as well. Please. Of course he does. Uh, Doug Developer sent in a stream lab. Thank you, Doug. He says, when analyzing dialogue, are you able to tell the quality of dialogue from reading what's written on the page? Or is it Tarantino's dialogue, or is Tarantino's dialogue great because of how his actors say them? If I try to repeat Cliff Booth's lines, the dialogue would sound horrible. Hmm. Good question. Um, I, I think, and I think my guess is you'd agree that when you're reading a script and the dialogue is great, you can tell. Yes. Yeah. It's like reading um, a story. And usually like when you read comics or read books, you have visions in your mind of who is saying these lines and how they're saying them. Yeah. So yes, I think a script is cool or well-written on first read. Now, what an actor might find is some interesting new interpretation some interesting levels to give it that you may not have seen when you were reading it. And that's because he's taking it all in context or he or she is taking it all in context and creating that. Well, and there's also the thing there's certain, and I don't, I wouldn't put Tarantino in this group, but I would put David Mamet in this group Mm. where good dialogue sometimes isn't really easy to say. Not everybody can, when, when Mamet is delivered properly, it's amazing dialogue, but it's not easy. Like you can't like Neil Simon, who is a great writer, you don't, you know, like a high school kid, it'll still sound good coming out of their mouth, but you give them the mammoth speech and it'll just sound like nothing. Yeah. You can't figure it out. I mean, it's the same. Obviously, that's true of Shakespeare where. Yes. Amazing dialogue, but it's hard to say, you know. Yeah, you have to and you have to act on the line. You don't yeah. act before the line or after the line. You act on the line with Shakespeare. I directed 12, uh, Glengarry Glenn Ross on stage at Florida State and, and Mamet is the hardest thing to break regular actors um patterns and techniques that they've learned from from other acting classes or whatever mamet breaks that like you're you're, you want to act out his lines you've got to deliver them and snap 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 snap. the emotions will be there if you're snap snap snapping the build will be there if you're vibing with each other and it's jazz and so it's like to me that's where the difference, uh, I agree with you, Steve. Mamet, it very much is like, it's delivered in a certain way and the rapidity and the speed. I mean, I, I had rehearsals where I was like, go, 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 go. Yeah. Like, I, it was so annoying, but we got there eventually 
and they got it eventually, but it took, it, it, you have to like kind of get yourself and, and let go of that shit to need to act and be seen acting, which a lot of actors do. And I think Tarantino has those moments as well. It seems like in his movies where he's breaking these actors down to let them just explore the lines, but deliver yep. them with, with a certain aplomb. Well, them. and this is the great thing, you know, if you have the privilege of working with good actors is mm. that you see them discover like once they get the familiarity with the lines yeah. and they're past the point where they need to worry about them and then you hear this line that didn't seem like it had a lot of stuff in it <laughs> suddenly has all this stuff in it because they're discovering thing and the one this isn't the best example but it's the one that popped in my mind is in glengarry uh in the movie kevin mm. spacey saying go to lunch go to lunch would you go to would you <laughs> like every time he says it and it's like yeah. five times it's yeah. bringing some other flavor of what he of of character of emotion of motivation. It's all it's it's all so good. Hmm. That could be. A fun We've talked watch. about it. That could be a fun rewatch. Oh, for the watch rewatch. Mm-hmm. Oh, that could ah, be interesting. I'm interesting. <laughs> interesting. Um, <laughs> well, let's let's deal with the um, the the thrust of the movie. In essence, yes. this relationship between Cliff Booth and Rick Dalton. Again, for those who keep in track, Dalton is DiCaprio, Brad Pitt is Cliff Booth. This this kind of simpatico relationship between the two, the stunt man and the the main actor, and the way that all works, the way that he you have a character like Cliff Booth who does not put on airs. Nope. Um, he's <clears throat> asked to pick up the dry cleaning, drives him around, does all these things, but with Rick, he never puts like with Rick, he never puts on airs. Now. When he's talking about his stunt stuff with other people and talking about do that fantasy with Bruce Lee, certainly he's putting on a little bit of airs. But around Dalton, he doesn't, and he encourages him, gives him a good word, uh, and even by the and even near the end when he's essentially let go by Dalton, there's no fight, there's no anger, there's nothing. He's just like, okay, I get it. You got your wife, and she doesn't want me around. I, uh, you know, we'll move on. And they have a nice drink afterwards. So it's an interesting character. And then of course the explosive finale. We really see the ferocity of Rick uh, come out, uh, just as we saw on in that uh, quick scene at the Manson Ranch when he absolutely destroys Clem and leaves him into a in a puddle of blood, fixing his tire. So, so I find this relationship totally fascinating. Mm. And my question about so first thing just about Cliff is yeah. I think, and maybe this goes into how we define cool. Cliff doesn't need mm. anything. Right. I mean, yes, he he wants to get some more work because he needs to continue to pay for his life, but it's. Uh, there's no sense as he's living in that trailer and feeding the dog dog food and watching his small TV and drinking a beer that that is unha- an unhappy place for him. You yeah. know what I mean? Like where a lot of people you go, oh, I got to get out. I got to get into a better place. I got to. That's not how Cliff feels. Cliff yeah. is like, I just want to, I, I, you know, he's going to, he's cool. He's Kane. He's going to walk the earth. Like he's just, <laughs> you know, he's just at, at peace. And the weird it's thing about food. that's great. Yeah. <laughs> the weird thing about the relationship with Rick and, I, and I'll ask you this question yeah do are they friends and if they are friends are they equal friends does cliff actually like rick does rick actually like cliff and do they like each other in the same amount it's a good question man that's a good question i don't know that friendship in the standard way that you would think of friendship applies here um, and by that, I mean, Rick Dalton is such a Hollywood actor that he could take or leave Cliff if he has to, right? Because it's about, 
achieving the success. But he cares about Cliff and certainly taking him out for a drink to tell him that he's letting him go. He, You can see he's struggling with it because he's got his own insecurities and whatever. So he hates that he's going to have to let someone go when he himself was desperate for work, not just a few months ago in the course of the film. So I think there's a care that he has for Cliff. And I think they maybe maybe they're more brothers than friends in that, like, you know, you've got your connection with your brother, but sometimes you can go months or weeks or years without talking to your brother and you, you, you vibe back again. I don't know. I'm trying to navigate this as you ask this question. And it feels to me that they're less friends and more brothers who kind of walk their own path. Um, so, it, yeah, it, I guess that's what such- I'm saying. Sorry, it's a, it's such a weird relationship. And here, here's where I, I feel on it at this moment, mm. which is that from this last watch, I think that Rick probably wouldn't admit it, but Cliff is his closest relationship and definitely uh, yeah. a, a closer relationship than his relationship with his new wife. Oh, sure. Right. 100%. Yeah. So, but I, in some ways, I think it's like the way you're close to your therapist. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm. Is that he shows his vulnerability to Cliff totally openly like this is all my and right. but it's also like a weird almost employee relationship but it is an employee relationship yeah. and i think for cliff this is again this is how i felt watching it this time yeah. it's not that he dislikes rick but i think rick is his job yes 100 percent. it's like this and 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 you know you can have a job where you where you like your employer right. you enjoy you know because he likes fixing the antenna and he likes you know, and he doesn't have a like status thing of like, oh, I can never be seen taking going to get the dry cleaning or whatever, driving this guy around. He's not having that thing. And but I also think I don't know that Cliff would hang out with Rick just because if he yeah. wasn't getting paid. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the movie, you know, they're at his house hanging out afterwards. Um, but, yeah, I don't think that there have been many nights like that in that relationship. And. I agree with you. He sees him as his job, which is why he get, he gives him no lip. He never, and he never tries to feel like he never tries to like become an equal. He never asks Rick, "Hey, can you get me a role on this or that?" Or like he's not trying to, you know, use him as a leg up. There's a different relationship. And I think if we asked Cliff Booth, the character, "Are you friends with Rick?" He'd probably be insulted by the question and wouldn't answer it. I would imagine. Like it. Right. It's not even in the equation. Why are you even yeah. asking me that? You know, the fact that he lets me into his house, the fact that he's the more successful person and I'm happy with the life I've built and I'm happy because of the tough times I had getting stunt work. I'm happy to work for him and be his stunt double and have a indirect connection to all these stars in Hollywood. I'm cool. It, it, the, I, I just I bumped a little bit and I'm th- thinking about hmm. the is Cliff is Rick the more successful person? And of course he is the more successful person in terms of Hollywood and money and status yeah. and things status. like that. Yeah. But Cliff doesn't want any of those things. Yeah. Rick is deeply insecure and in constant pain and constantly feeling like a failure. So even though technically he's the more successful, there's another way of saying, no, Cliff is more successful because he's more at peace with where yeah. he is with his status, you know? But also, Cliff might be a low key sociopath. So I don't know. Like, there's a, I've, I've seen, um, I was well, doing research. Sociopaths can be very successful. <laughs> true, very true. Um, I was reading some, uh, some stuff uh, in preparation for our show today. And some people have said that the Cliff, they can see Cliff becoming a serial killer down the road, like a, in the vein of um, uh, Ted Bundy. You know, where he's this good looking wow. guy who's able to do these things because 
the violence when it erupts from him is so brutal and so complete that it is unsettling. And we will get to that final scene as we're having this discussion for sure. So um, let's hit some of these streamlabs that have come through, Stephen. We'll move on to uh, Margot Robbie and the Sharon Tate aspect of this film. Jonathan Peck says, uh, how about this fun question for both of you? With Quentin Tarantino's, I'm going to put this, final film on the horizon, which actor or actress who has never been in a Tarantino film should be in his final film? Ooh. One that jumped to my mind uh, is, strangely enough, Bradley Cooper. Oh, Cooper. That's a nice choice. Because he he is good-looking and charming, but also has the ability to play a bunch of different kind of tones, I would say. Yeah. Um, Who else? Um, I think Florence Pugh would be real interesting. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, Um, Just because he's the man of the hour, we can put Pedro Pascal in there. Oh, yeah. Why not? He's rarely done Latino stuff in his movies, so that could be interesting. Oh, that'd be great. That'd be really cool to see. I mean, a cartel film directed by Tarantino. Oh, don't get me. Um, yeah, uh, I, I think. Who I was it just thinking of? I was just thinking of somebody, and it went out of my mind. Oh well. Um, yeah, there are a number of actors. Oh, Stallone. I think Stallone could be real oh. interesting in a Tarantino film, especially after having watched Tulsa King. Um, I think this is a this could be a real interesting choice by Tarantino, not to use him as a lead, but certainly to use him a dis, as a distinct part because he can radiate old school seventies clearly because he grew up in the seventies, but could be there to radiate that little bit of seventies old man stuff um, that could be fascinating to have in this film as well. Um, For, first, one that another one popped my mind because yeah. I mean this is an actor who's always good, so why wouldn't he be good in a Tarantino movie? But Denzel Washington oh, would yeah, be fantastic. In, in a Tarantino movie. But the other thing I realized, what we really should be mining to answer this question yeah. is what cool television stars or forgotten stars, not what big stars would be in a Quentin Tarantino oh, movie, yeah. but who's the next person who he brings back, like David Carradine, like Robert Forrester, you know, you got someone. Bronson Pinchot. Bronson oh my Pinchot. God, yes. <laughs> yeah, if Reginald Vell Johnson wasn't doing those uh, Geico TV ads, or TV dad ads, I think he would have been a nice choice as well. Um, yeah, I was just thinking, wouldn't it be interesting, Steve? This is a, a, a something that popped into my head, and I hope I can walk into this minefield correctly, but wouldn't it be interesting? Because we've talked about on our show, which you've illuminated me on, his exposure to African-American cinema, his exposure to African-American men who were guiding him in his taste of cinema back when he was growing up there as being either connect, friends with their, his mom or dating his mom. And what about an all-black film from Tarantino? We've seen almost all his movies focus exclusively on white leads or a gang of white people, but we've rarely seen the black leads or multiple black leads. Jackie Brown is about the, the, the closest thing you could come to that, but you still had Robert Forster in there as the balance to Jackie, and you had Michael Keaton and uh, and all of that, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't want to combine that with Out of Sight, which is Dennis Freeman and Jennifer Lopez. So it was Michael Keaton playing the same character in both films. But like that could that is kind of the interesting aspect of it all to have uh, like an all black film, or like we saw with Harder They Fall recently, that black western. That could be really interesting to have from Tarantino, a kind of way of closing the circle from the influences that influenced him from the beginning 
to jump into this world of film. I think um, I so I think that sounds really interesting. I think Spike Lee probably have something to say about that. <laughs> well, fuck that. I mean, at this point, fuck that. I wouldn't listen to a fucking thing if I was Tarantino that Spike Lee has to say. He has walked his path. I've walked my path. And if he can do Inside Man, I can do different type of film. Like it's just, I think he's got a right or Twenty Fifth Hour, which is almost exclusively all white except for Rosario Dawson. I would well, absolutely uh, do what I wanted to do. So I sure, well, you know, you get no cool. argument for me. I think people should be able to make movies about anything. You know, yeah. yeah. Uh, David Duval, or D Duval Fifty Nine says, "Did Cliff kill his wife?" I like how ambiguous it is, but I think he did it. What do you guys think? Love everything you do. Well, thank you. First of all, thank you. And second of all, my understanding is in the novel, it is very clear that he did kill his wife. Wow. That is that I have not read the, you know, Quentin Tarantino's novelization of this movie, but that's my understanding. Yeah, I felt that from the movie itself that he killed his wife. And I wouldn't be surprised if Rick helped him cover it up. Oh, in terms in terms of like sliding him some cash or some lawyers or something to get him out of the situation because it was ambiguous enough that he could keep working in Hollywood, but clearly the stuff with his wife and what he tells us later, the, the, the lie he tells us about his experience with Bruce Lee makes us think that this guy has kind of shot himself in the foot in a couple of occasions. So people know about him, even though he wasn't convicted, people know about him and don't want to work with him because of that, uh, that possible rumor in the background of his um, of his life. So yeah, that's how I would say it. it. It's a weird thing because, and I and I wonder what its purpose is in Tarantino's mind because mm. it's like basically maybe it's just to undermine Cliff because Cliff is so solidly cool, you know, and and heroic in lots of ways, you know, and we're told that he's yeah. a war hero. That having this thing of because if he killed his wife, is the implication that he shot her. Like in the next second, is that what it seems we, like? The the cu- camera cuts away just before he accidentally has the gun go off and shoot her. Because that is a cold blooded murder. Yes, you know what is. I mean? Like it's it not is. it's not a crime of passion. He's sitting there. He's going. I'm done with you. And it happens. And it's interesting too. And I, by the way, I do want to address the Bruce Lee thing again. I know. Yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna address that for sure. Okay. Yeah. But but like the fact that that happens, that flashback happens in a weird way connected with the bruce lee flashback yeah you know what i mean like that's what it it, that's what undermines his character while also and again this is the classically tarantino thing of showing something bad and making it seem cool you know yeah Yeah. he's an unreliable narrator is cliff booth and so you look at this uh, flashbacks of his own life and certainly the the what he sees is his wife like badgering him about stuff yeah could have been a completely different situation from the outside watching it right if you're objective observer it could have been her just telling him like you you're messing this up you're messing that up you got to focus like i'm trying to get you to do better in your life and this is what's happening and he shoots her (coughs) with that thing it's such a brutal death as you said but it kind of mirrors the natalie wood death with the mystery around that with uh robert wagner and christopher walken on a boat you know you can say all kinds of things on a boat can you prove what can you prove and I think in a way that kind of throws that in the mix as well. Um, but yeah, let's move on to the Bruce Lee scene. I know I mentioned we talk about, uh, and we will, because I want to connect that to a larger thing, the Margot Robbie stuff. But um, Steve, yeah, the Bruce Lee flashback here. Um, this is Mike Moe, who plays uh, Bruce Lee 
in the movie. I got a chance to interview him when they were doing the press for the movie. Yeah. Uh, when I was at Collider, and it was great. Mike had been a follower of the Schmodown, so he like was a fan of the Outlaw, which was really blew my That's mind. Cool. I'd never heard of him, and then I watched the videos he had done and his imitations of Bruce Lee. They were incredible with him and his wife, you know, kind of imitating Bruce Lee in a lot of ways. And so for him to get the part, he had sent in this audition, and uh, and a lot of people were pushing him to do it. And he finally sent it in. Tarantino met with him, and he booked him in the role. But he got a lot of pushback, and certainly the film got a lot of pushback from a lot of Bruce Lee fans because they felt, this is a controversial scene, they felt that, in a way, Tarantino was trying to diminish this great Asian hero by having Cliff, Cliff Booth, a regular stuntman who had been a war hero, but be able to go toe-to-toe with Bruce Lee. And that Bruce Lee comes off as this cocky, arrogant shithead. Now, Tarantino responded to this criticism by saying this is Cliff's flashback, so Cliff would see it this way. But I th- I feel, I've always felt that was a bit of a cop-out. He got caught with his hand in the cookie jar, in making this mistake, didn't understand how people might react to it and tried to backtrack and uh, switch the explanations for why he did what he did. What do you feel as a martial artist and as a fan of Bruce Lee? We've, you know, we've talked about our love of Bruce Lee on the cinephiles. What is your feeling about this scene and the way Tarantino tried to explain it afterwards? Okay. So first of all, the idea that this is, yes, it, by the way, it is a flashback, which is a thing that in general we've talked about with Tarantino. He doesn't, do flashbacks he does this non-linear storytelling this is a flashback but if your point as a master filmmaker and we've said many times that tarantino is that this is to some degree exaggerated through cliff's perspective there are all sorts of filmmaking ways that you could have told the audience that this and this guy and and if anyone could do that it's tarantino he didn't do that it's very clear that there was this event that happened on the Green Hornet set because that's why they're not going to hire him for the other gig. Yeah. You know, like that's that's really, really clear. And here's my feeling about it. So we've said many times Tarantino doesn't care about history. Tarantino cares about movies. Yeah. And so the fact that all the guns are wrong in Django and Chain, he doesn't care because he right. wants to do what he wants to do. Hitler did not, in fact, die in a in a movie theater. <laughs> like, no, he did not. Like he doesn't, he wants to do what he wants to do. And exactly. and to some degree, like when we got in Inglorious Bastards as a Jewish guy, some of that stuff bothered me. Mm. Um, well, the, and this is the thing when okay. you pick a character like Bruce Lee, who's yeah. very recent and very beloved and very well known, yeah, then the fact that you don't actually care that much about history and you just want to do what you want to do gets you into trouble. Because the first yeah. thing is, anyone who studied Bruce Lee knows that he is a huge fan of Muhammad Ali, and yes. that's my first point. He wouldn't have called him Cassius Clay, like. He would call him Muhammad Ali. That's the the very first thing. He studied Muhammad Ali's films Mm -hmm. like over and over again. Part of Jeet Kune Do comes from studying American boxing and Muhammad Ali being one of the big models. So like the idea that we come to him bad mouthing Cassius Clay is totally not correct. And then the fact Bruce Lee would not throw a jumping sidekick as his first attack. That is not what. And then he certainly wouldn't throw it again. You know, it's that's not how Bruce Lee would fight, you know, because we have lots of documentation of how he would fight. And the fact that like I'm if you want to build up your character of Cliff, that's fine. But you don't need to do it by uh, by insulting this icon. 
That yeah. I yeah, the, rewatching it this time and thinking about it in the context of the whole movie, I think it's a really weird scene, and I think it's very disrespectful, Bruce. Oh, yeah, I think it's one of the rare mistakes he makes in his movies when it comes to revering the people. Because I mean, he re- he has said multiple times he re- he reveres Bruce Lee, loves Bruce Lee, but the way this comes off, I think you're 100 right, Steve. There were better ways for him to convey to the audience. Like this is Cliff's kind of uh, fucked up flashback that, and, and you know, Tara, as we talked about in um, Reservoir Dogs, our discussion with uh, uh, David McKenna there, talking about um, how he doesn't consider those flashbacks in the film flashbacks by the technical term because the character is not remembering these moments. This is just told out of sequence. Right. This is most definitely a flash. You know, a it right. feels like it's in the sequence of the movie. But it doesn't necessarily feel 100% like it's a flashback. So I think he should have clarified what was happening. And then afterwards, because I know Cliff's on the roof and he's changing the antenna and he's got his shirt off and all this. You're remembering this. But there was a way to tell it that doesn't feel like it's a it's an accurate depiction of the state of what happened. And I think he dropped the ball there. I don't think he anticipated people would. Right. come after them the way he did. And he might have been caught up in trying to focus on the Cliff Booth story and not enough on making sure Bruce Lee came out of that story in a better light than the way he wrote it. Um, I, I see someone here, uh, Movie Ace, saying QT said that a stunt performer could beat Bruce Lee in a fight like this because Bruce isn't a fighter. Cliff is also a warman. Uh, nothing could be further from the fucking truth, uh, for God's sakes. No stuntman is going to take out Bruce Lee. No stuntman is going to take out Bruce Lee, who had taken out some of the, you know, had had in these fights with martial artists. So it's ridiculous to even think that on so many levels. And if you revere this person, why have them come out second in this? Why have them come out sounding like a big, a big asshole? So, yeah, I agree with you, Steve. Your basic point. He fucked up in how he presented this particular scene in the movie because it made it seem like it might have been true. And that's not what you want. You don't want ambiguousness around a scene like this. Well, I won't say that no stunt performer could take on Bruce Lee. There might I'll be. say it. Oh, that's fine. There might be one out there. But to say that Bruce Lee's not a real fighter, that's just not true. Like, there's mm-hmm. plenty of evidence. He was he was regularly challenged by stunt performers on movie sets yeah. who didn't think he was all that. And from everything I've read, he would take them out quickly, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. Movie is saying why can't Cliff win over Bruce? Isn't a stunt performer. He's not a boxer. Oh God, for God's sakes, cut cut it out, movie. Um. Anyway, uh, so yeah, that's 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 a controversial scene in the movie. Certainly, we talked about the. Can can I say just one one more thing about that last comment? Is that we can say that Bruce Lee's not an MMA fighter, but Dana Dana White and a whole bunch of MMA people trace the beginning of MMA to Bruce Lee. That he is one of the key figures because he's the this person who was combining different martial arts in order to find the best fighting system. So he's part of the origin of mixed martial arts. Yeah. Can I, I can trot you out 5 million war veterans who wouldn't have a shot at Bruce Lee being a war veteran doesn't mean a damn thing. And so in terms of this kind of situation, not overall, obviously, but yeah, the, the, I think you're absolutely right. And, 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 um, uh, Dana White made sure to have Bruce Lee as a character you can play in all the UFC games because of his respect for Bruce Lee as a founding father of MMA 
So there yep. you go. Um, all right, uh, let's move on to, uh, okay, we don't have any, uh, just encouraging you all to send in some Streamlabs and Super Chats like people have sent to, the, it's been great to see these Super Chats, Streamlabs from you all. We also have 65 of you watching us right now. We might have more watching later on when you do this, uh, when you watch this video. Please make sure you subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Hit a like on this video and leave a comment. What are your thoughts about the movie? What are your thoughts about what we've said so far, what we're going to say a little bit later? Give us your idea, uh, your points of views and your feelings about it as well. Um, all right, Steve, let's move on to Margot Robbie here as Sharon Tate. I want to connect this to a larger point I have to make about the movie. She's really not that fleshed out as a character. A ca- not Tarantino, at all. Yeah, Tarantino leaves her as this kind of, I can't remember what the term is, but where you you, ide- you idolize or you... Um, you create this fantasy version of a female character and that's what she is she's very sweet she's nice she's beautiful she goes to see herself in the film sharon tate wasn't considered like this great actress she was still kind of coming up and so you you get the idea that she's a sweet a sweet person but we don't see her having these like really interesting intense scenes we don't get to find, oh sorry we don't get to find out more about her sorry my camera just went dead for a second we don't get to find out more oh there we go and there i am sorry about that but anyway <laughs> I like the steer. I think the series of still images was kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, the George Lopez. Anyway, we I might have to sw- come back out, but I'm I'm gonna say this. Real, and we don't get to find out more about her in the film. And I think overall, how women are treated in this film isn't great. And yet again, this is an issue that comes up with Tarantino's movies, where women aren't the central figure of his movies. Is that he can be a bit m- male about the approach. And it's not always a good thing. So what did you think about this? So I, I couldn't agree more. I, like I said, I'm captivated by Margot Robbie th- every time she's on screen because yeah. she's captivating. She doesn't, she barely has a line. Yes. She has yes. no, pl- she, there's no plot. There's no yeah. story. Like there isn't. And part of it is because she exists in the film because her, the, she lives next door to our main characters. That's right. her only purpose. She, her position, her geographic location draws the bad guys to fight our main characters. Other than that, she has nothing to do with anything that's going on in the movie. She doesn't have, you know, again, it's basic like acting story things. She doesn't have a want. She doesn't yeah. have an obstacle. She doesn't have a story. She's just, yeah. and, and, and and she literally is just there to be quite beautiful eye candy, to yeah. be to be an object of desire. I mean, like, it's like the Steve McQueen scene, which I think that guy does a great Steve McQueen. Yes, and, uh, Damian Lewis. Yeah. Yeah, he's great. And his speech is great, but it has nothing to do with anything, you know, yeah. but it's yeah. it's great. And that party seems great. And it's interesting watching her drive around with Roman Polanski, who also is entirely not filled out as a character at yes, all. hundred percent. You know, hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, I, I see some people going, "Well, she's supposed to be the fantasy." That's the, but the point. But no, you can't create a fantasy and then have us uh, care about the fantasy that has no depth to it, because the whole reason that you're doing the ending is because the Manson family brutally killed Sharon yeah. Tate. And so we have to care about the fact that you didn't, that you killed the Manson family in your fantasy at the end of your movie. And the reason we have to care about that is because we care about Sharon Tate, but we right. don't care about Sharon Tate. And not, not that Margot Robbie isn't a great actress and we can't automatically connect with her. It's more a matter of, we don't have the real estate in the movie to spend time to get to know her fears and her uh, wants and her desires or vulnerabilities yes there are moments she's got the pregnancy that there are back and forth but we don't really see her fleshed out as her own person 
And that's really frustrating. And I think that's so if, if I'm supposed to care that they didn't kill this person, I've got to really want this person to live and care about this person, be affected by this person, be invested in this person and their journey. Um, and you don't get that in the movie. And I think that's also a little bit of a mistake in the film. And just to clarify for Mike Snow, who apparently missed what I said here, I said any film where the film where the female is not the lead, Tarantino has a problem with his female characters, the way he talks about or has his characters talk about women in his movies. Even you get the Manson family, certainly. And we get Squeaky from Dakota Fanning doing a nice job there. But they're all, you know, and, and the scene with him and uh, Margaret Qualley in the car, Cliff Booth and Margaret Qualley in the car. She's just coming on to him the whole time to lead him into this moment. And then he dismantles their male warrior. And before Tech shows up, who, by the way, is played by Austin Butler, who is now nominated for Elvis. And um, later on, the, the brutality with which uh, Dalton and Booth kill the women is unsettling. Um, they set the woman on one of the women on fire. Okay. Booth smashes her face into shelves and dismantle a jacks her jaw. It is madness. The way they are treated in this movie, it's really uncomfortable. Uh, and I just, I, I think overall it, it, eh, there's just an aspect of this that uh, you would expect more from Tarantino and how he approaches because of women in these films, in this film, because of Kill Bill and Jackie Brown and a couple of the movies where the women have been the lead. So it's a confounding thing with him sometimes. So uh, it's a, se several thoughts. The, the first one is, as I'm watching the comments go, I think, yeah. John, this is the, the most contentious our line of comments have ever been. I like I it. Think it's, yeah, and I think it's really, it just shows what this movie, A, it shows something about Tarantino, and it shows something yep. very specific about this movie, which is this is a divisive film. And there are people yeah. that have a great deal of respect for Tarantino, like you and I, yeah. who have issues with the movie and people that this movie totally works for. And I know you feel the same way of like, yeah. I never, ever want to convince somebody that a movie that they love, they shouldn't love. Right. That's, oh. like, that's like stealing money from someone. It's like you invested your 15 bucks or whatever it was in, in the ticket and yeah. you got more than your money's worth. That's awesome. And, and that's great. Yeah. And I, it's not that I'm bored in this movie. I totally am captivated by it. Yeah. It's just a really odd film. And I think I, it suddenly occurred to me that part of my issue, and maybe this is part of your issue too, I don't know, with, with mm -hmm. the violence at the end, is there is a minority report element. You're punishing characters for crimes they have yet to commit. Yeah, just a real quick. Mike Snow says, these women are murderers. They weren't murderers. They They're killed not. no one in the movie. Mike, did you watch the movie? They killed no one in the movie. This is the problem of the movie to me at the end. I love the movie all the way to the end. The end is the issue because the end says, hey, you viewer, you sure as fuck better have done your homework before we come into this theater so you can invest into these people, which I've done nothing to show you that they're murderers. You can invest that you want them to die because of what they did in real life, not what they've done in the film. There's the difference, and that's where I have a problem. Whereas with, with Inglorious Bastards, it was very clear what Hitler was doing. It was, it was very yeah. clear what the Nazis were doing. So they got what they deserved at the end of the movie in the theater and uh, um, uh, Hitler being uh, carved up and Christoph Waltz having uh, been shot up, rather, and Christoph Waltz being carved up at the end. They all did terrible things, so they deserve what they got. None of these people did terrible things. The only thing the woman did was stab Cliff Booth in the leg. That's it. 
That's the extent of what they did. And they were desperate, sad kids, the way they're portrayed in the movie, who are just trying to take care of Hollywood or take out Hollywood or whatever. So the idea that you have to bring in your stuff, but I don't have to do the work to lay the groundwork for why these characters should be killed in such a brutal way is a mistake. Well, and this is, it's like if, you know, obviously the Manson murders are yeah. absolutely terrifying. They're, they terrified all of the country. I mean, this yeah, is, was a time. horrible, brutal thing. Sure. Tar if Tarantino wanted to get into that, he could have gotten into that. I mean, we're following yeah. multiple characters where yeah. you could have been in with the Manson. You could have been with Charlie Manson telling them what the plan was. Manson you know? has one scene in the movie. Yep. And he's not even seen as some kind of guy who's like, you know, trying to manipulate people into killing people. You don't even see any of that. Yeah, I mean, so it's it's a really weird thing. Now, personally, I, you know, self-defense is a perfectly reasonable way. Someone's coming in, they have a knife, they're attacking yeah, you. I believe sure. you have a right to self-defense. I don't have a problem whether it's self-defense with a woman or a guy. Although, this is, again, this is, this is not a criticism in the movie. This is just my personal philosophy. Mm -hmm. If you are as much of a badass as Cliff is portrayed, you probably could disarm the woman without killing her. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You could just knock her out. You didn't have to beat her to death. He knocked yeah. Clem out yeah. and didn't beat him to death. No. And made him uh, change his tire. He could have yeah. not. I mean, he, Austin, but Tex, fine. Whatever with Tex, the dog, that's the male. He's coming and more aggressive. Fine. But the girl, you could have easily knocked the girl out and turn it around have her drive you to the hospital so you get your leg taken a look at and 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 have her wait there. So in a way, you're turning it around. But by having it such a brutal death yeah. for people who have done nothing in the film, again, done nothing in the film, they did something in the real world. In an alternate timeline. Yeah. Even in the moment with George Spahn there, that scene where they're at the Manson family ranch, there is no violence being uh, nope. carried out or conducted by these people. So it seems like overboard what happens here and maybe the male fantasy of killing women in such a brutal way. This is a problem. And this is what I find when I watch the ending of the movie. Again, I love the movie, even though the Bruce Lee doesn't work for me a lot. I love the movie all the way to that ending. That ending to me really fucks up the movie for me because it is there. He's done nothing to make you think these people are murderers or have murdered or are brutal or are vicious in any way, shape, or form. Um, because you have Bruce Dern being like, Oh no, they take care of me, leave me alone, and blah blah blah. And yeah, Tex or Clem gets involved in that situation by putting a knife in the tire. That's it, putting a knife in the tire and gets destroyed for it. And then at the end, there they, they you know, um, Maya Hawk runs off and leaves them alone. They're clearly three very messed up young kids in their 20s who are fucking fucked up so cliff could have absolutely done exactly what you said steve which is to knock them all out tie them up and then call the cops but tarantino wanted this kind of revenge for sharon tate which i think was really weird because we don't see them do anything you know it's kind of odd I think this kind of goes back to the my original point about the movie is this idea of narrative thrust because if you look yeah. in glorious bastards the whole point, we see who the bad guys are. Yeah. We see Christoph Waltz's character, and we're following Brad Pitt and his commandos as they try to attack the Nazis, and their goal is to kill Hitler. 
You yeah. know, that's yeah. what the movie is about. In yeah. Django, the movie is about going to this horrible place and rescuing your wife against these horrible, awful, awful people. Mm-hmm. That's what the movie's about. And so the right. fact that those movies end in violence is the culmination of what the structure of the movie is bringing you to. Right. This movie is about an actor who may or may not be, has been, who's struggling with his career and his mm-hmm. stuntman buddy who has his stuff. There's nothing about, this is not a movie about the Mansons or anything like that. Yeah. We interact with them, but that's not what the movie's about. This, that's why this ending becomes so sort of, odd yeah you know it's just and the thing the flamethrower thing to me is even more egregious because that's really a isn't this cool that the flamethrower that we set up earlier in the movie i'm really going to use the actors really and it goes you know what the other thing is there's a weird tarantino thing where of you know the thing you said about the 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 bio of the of the actor and that that has to be destroyed this mm. you know like the the puff piece kind of thing yeah, yeah 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 it's like tarantino believes all those things about this this era of actors that they really were the badasses that they're pretending to be yeah. and there's also and this is i remember him talking about how much he loved dirty harry and dirty harry is the establishment pushing back against the anti-establishment yeah, and yeah. cliff is this that he is the old school white veteran pushing back against bruce lee against the hippies mm. against those you know that's what this yeah, is great you point. know yeah and someone pointed out in the chat it also makes cliff booth almost seem like he hates women killed his wife yeah eats this woman to death and then almost cheers on dalton setting another woman on fire in his pool so like that's the thing at the end of the day it just doesn't make sense and i see some of you some of, i see a couple of people getting very very angry and using a lot of capital letters and exclamation points um which i'm you know i'm sorry you feel so strongly and angrily about it and um to, but to us it doesn't make sense he does not do the job that he did in glory in inglorious bastards of portraying uh, the manson family in the way that he portrays the nazis in the movie if there was real estate in the movie where we saw these people killing other people, where we saw these people physically abusing and uh, raping or um, uh, removing people's uh, free will and independence, if we had seen stuff like that and them having this more kind of evil and angry intention rather than being scatterbrained when they're trying to go after Sharon Tate and change their minds to go after Cliff Booth, then I think the, the the ending would have been validated just like I felt the ending was validated in Inglorious in Bastards. No matter how ridiculous it was that they shot up Hitler like that, it was it was you could it made sense in the movie because of how the movie was constructed. It doesn't make sense here. And no matter how much you yell or use exclamation points or capital letters, it's not going to change my mind. It doesn't make sense here, you know. And it's not about what well, should you not try to kill someone who tries to kill you? No. Of course, she stabbed him. That's the end of it. Booth, bang, knocks her out, ties her up, calls the police. That simple. You don't have to kill someone who's trying to kill you. You can actually dismantle them, especially if A, you're a war veteran. B, you apparently could beat Bruce Lee. C, you don't got a problem shooting your wife dead. You should be able to handle the situation of a 20-year-old woman, come, a girl, in essence, coming in and trying to stab you in a frantic way in your leg. Uh, when you have the upper hand and no, the fact that he was on acid does not excuse what the fuck went down. So just kind of uh, crazy to see that. Yeah. My experiences on acid have always been very peaceful. <laughs> yeah. I, I hardly yeah. killed anybody. Um, you know what I think is something uh, that I said, I think when we did our first conversation about Tarantino is yeah, the fact is, is that 
23-year-old Steve would have had a very different reaction to this. Yeah. When I was reading, and the thing that always pops in my mind is Sin City, Frank Miller's Sin City. And that is ultra-violent, and it is embracing its violence and revenge. And yeah. I fucking loved it. Loved it. Yeah. Quoted it, read it many, many times. And 54-year-old Steve isn't as into that anymore. You know? Yeah. And so the titillation factor of the end of this movie, it, it's not, it's just not how i feel and as you know we talked about this before yeah. i am not a vengeful person like vengeance is not a thing that makes sense in my brain right you know and so and this is why as a jewish guy i had a very strong reaction i don't like elements of inglorious bastards because yeah. you know in my mind vengeance is not jewish so i'm not mm. like that's not what the way i think okay you know well, look, I love vengeance and I love seeing vengeance <laughs> taken out in the movie. So if both of us are on the same page about something that would would satisfy me um, that didn't work, then to me, that doesn't work. That didn't work overall. So uh, and I see some people commenting, which I appreciate about the about the uh, book, that the book clarifies that that tells me also that Tarantino went back and retconned some stuff to make it fit within the movie, make it work within the movie because he had gotten criticism for it. He had gotten called out for it. And I think he was trying to retroactively uh, do some stuff here. So um, yeah, Adam Jimenez, I think says it best. Yeah, yeah, I totally get it. That's why I'm saying it's hard to separate knowing history of what happened. It's fine if it doesn't work for some, it did for me, which I think is fair. Absolutely. I'm not saying, Absolutely. I think we're both not saying that it shouldn't work for you. If, you, if you, it works for you, fine. It just didn't yeah. work for us. So, you know. And I saw, did someone, oh, here we go. Um, this person complaining that a female killer can't get the shit beat out of her in a movie is woke sexism. Jesus, tag it. Women brutally beat up men in movies without suffering a scratch. That's not a problem. Oh, God. Woke, woke sexism. You got to love it. What? Uh, oh, God. I found a new uh, term I can use. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. yeah. I am a, a totally equal opportunity person when it comes to, you know, things yeah. that happen to women, things that happen to men. There's no, to me, if, if it's justified by the characters and justified in the film, then that's fine, you know. I had no problem with uh, uh, Kill Bill, uh, with uh, Beatrix Kiddo killing Oren Ishii or Black Mamba. I had no problem with any of that because you laid the groundwork of why these people should be yeah. killed or possibly or be taken out. So you've got to lay the groundwork, and I don't think it does it. This Philip Bryan says, QT is great. Pitt deserved his Oscar. These criticisms of the film are valid. All can be true. Thank you, Philip. Agreed. That. Well yeah. said. Yeah, well said, brother. <laughs> woke sexism anyway let's move on to uh <laughs> it just cracks me up that i come up with a new term let me use it all right sid says um do you guys think tarantino is a great visual storyteller i have come to realize after watching django and inglorious that his movies have more style of dialogue rather than deep authentic storytelling which feels real more style less substance wow oh, all right sid well we're we, you know we just finished our first part of uh, django steve and we're talking about once upon a time and we did um reservoir what are your thoughts on this do you think tarantino's more style and less substance so first of all he's got great style i mean <laughs> that's that's yeah. to be real clear i mean like i i, I know i said this before but mm. like there are shots where you're just watching cliff drive the car where nothing is oh, happening and i'm just like this is the most beautiful shot of a person driving the car yeah. you know there's so i mean so stylistically off the charts yeah do i i don't quite put him as a a visual storyteller at like the Spielberg level. Spielberg to me is the master of, of visually telling you a story. Mm. Um, as terms of style versus substance, as I said, and I know that you disagree, but like, I don't think of Tarantino as a terribly deep 
filmmaker. In some ways, actually, I think some of the scenes in this, particularly Leonardo DiCaprio on the movie on the TV set acting, that's yeah. some deep, that's some deeper stuff he's getting into. Yeah. But in general, I do think that he is about the experience, the style, the moment, the thrill, the coolness of everything that's happening. You're not, I'm not having deep contemplative thoughts about right. the meaning, although maybe to some degree we have in this conversation. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, he's he is, but his style is incredible. Absolutely. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah. Uh, no, I, I I like his style. Um, I think he's got a point to his films, and I I would argue there is substance. And we we spoke about this when we were talking about Django in our first part. I don't want to give too much away but this idea of the relationship between christoph waltz and jamie fox oh, so good has substance so good. i yeah. think the relationship between jamie fox and carrie washington has substance in the movies uh in that movie i think this film has substance in the relationship between these two men this is very much a man movie these are two dudes at different points in their lives who have this relationship and rely on each other whether they want to speak about it or not or highlight it or not there's a genuine camaraderie between these two guys. One is happy with the life that he's living, but also has this kind of darkness aspect to him underneath it all. And another one is so desperate to retain some level of fame or achieve a next level of success right. so he can stay. So they both need each other in different ways, but it's there. And so the substance of their relationship, I think, is really rich. You know, And I, I think actually his films have... Uh, more deceptive substance than you might think if you look at specific relationships, right? I would say the Marcellus Wallace-Bruce Willis relationship is a fascinating relationship in Pulp Fiction in, in terms of having the substance between them. Just in line, these guys as actors really put levels into the things that they're saying in their back and forth, especially at the end. When he says, what about us? You know, uh, you know, What now? Or what now? We get this. No, no, I mean us what now? Oh your LA privileges are revoked. You got to get on it. So there's a thing, there's a connection there. The scene with uh, Uma Thurman and um, uh, Travolta, Jack Rabbit Slims. I really like that. It's not just style. There's a real, she really likes him and she's kind of, you know, could there be an affair? Maybe, but she oh, yeah. surrenders her most vulnerable thing at the end with him in revealing the joke and in, you know, which right. embarrassed her. So there are substantive moments in the films. Do I find there's an incredible amount of substance in his movies? No, that's not the kind of director Tarantino is. But there is substance in his films in certain scenes and in certain relationships. And I think in all of his films. I feel like I need to come up with better words because I agree mm. with everything you just said. Mm. Um, and, like, and, and part of it, you can't write amazing dialogue and not have a deep sense of character because dialogue comes from character yep, yep, you know right, and right. so like that scene that you mentioned in jack rabbit slims yeah that that scene is so filled with flirting and tension and laughter and you know and it's all again super cool right. you know so so like i i it's not it's actually kind of hard for me to define because i think i think like in a lot of ways a tarantino film it's not like a thrill ride. That's mm -hmm. not, it's not like, you know, where you just go from one adventure into another. That's not what it is. But you are being pulled along by the coolness of everything, yeah. you know, as yeah. you go. And if this movie, and, and I'll say, if it, this movie wasn't stylistic, it would be really boring because you're just yeah. following a whole bunch of stuff that doesn't have a lot of meaning, you yeah. know. And again, I go back to Margot Robbie going to the movie theater, which is probably 
eight minutes or something yeah. of a woman watching herself in a movie. And because it's so beautifully done, you're totally involved in it, you know? And as a film, as a film viewer, you know, cause I saw some people saying, I love that we get to watch as a film. Viewer, you have to separate. Are you enjoying Margot Robbie? Or are you enjoying Sharon Tate's Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate? There's a difference. If you're watching Margot Robbie, what you're doing is falling in love with Margot Robbie. You're not falling in love with Sharon Tate. So you've got to focus on what the film is giving you about Sharon Tate to decide if you're falling in love with Sharon Tate or falling in love with Margot Robbie. I think that's the thing we always have to kind of uh, navigate for ourselves when we see actors portray real world, real life people is are they doing the right job in constructing that real life person for you to care about them? Or are you invested in the actor? And there is a difference. It's a, it's a, it's a subtle difference, but it is a difference. And I think that's where I think the movie stumbles in portraying Sharon Tate. Well, for me, yeah. I think I'm clearly falling in love with Margot Robbie yeah. because I don't know anything about Sharon Tate. Right. She's not a kid. There, there is, Again, I don't know. I, I know that she sees that she's excited that she's in a movie and she's yeah. thrilled to enjoy herself being a movie. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. but I don't know who Sharon Tate is. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, this is an interesting cinematographer that um, Tarantino used. Uh, Steve, you mentioned the look of it. He did Once Upon a Time in Hollywood um, and he did The Hateful Eight. He did Django Unchained. It's his Robert Richardson. Mm -hmm. um, he did Inglorious Bastards. Uh, he's done the Kill Bill. So this is the guy he's used consistently. Yep. But this guy has also DP'd The Doors, Born on the Fourth mm. of July, Wall Street, oh. Natural Born Killers, Casino, The Horse Whisper, Snow Falling on Cedars, The Good Shepherd, which I thought was a damn good movie, um, Eat, Pray, Love, Hugo, um, World War Z, so he's worked with Brad Pitt before, um, A Private War, which I thought was an interesting film with... Um, Oh, I forget the actress from, uh, from uh, I forget her name. Uh, but he also did Venom, Let There Be Carnage, and, and most recently did Emancipation for um, uh, Antoine Fuqua. And I thought the cinematography in, in Emancipation was oh, it's incredible. Right? Absolutely. Gorgeous. Absolutely. So he's not a name a lot of people seem to bring up, Robert Richardson. Yet I think he's um, shot some of the most incredible films and given us some of the most incredible scenes in movies um, for the last three or four decades. I mean, it, it's funny. I didn't know that he had done all those things. Yeah. And while I can't speak to the Venom movie, because I've never seen one of them, every movie that I've seen that you mentioned is a beautifully shot film. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I think this guy deserves more credit uh, than he's maybe getting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. Go ahead, Steve. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, I was just, I, 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 you, this, maybe this is on your agenda next, but I really want to talk about Leo's performance. Let's do it. Let's do it. Because I think, and watching him in this again, and particularly because we're doing Django simultaneously. So I'm watching him and Django mm -hmm. and him here. I think he is going, his, I think he's going up and up towards that Mount Rushmore of greatest actors ever. Mm. I think he is so damn good. Yeah. And the contrast between him and Django and him and this and all of the little insecurities and all the layers of his performance, like in the meeting with Al Pacino, obviously yeah. in the scene with the girl, obviously in the trailer where he's freaking out, like all of there's so much going on with him in every single moment. The guy, the yeah. guy's a master actor. Yeah. He's become so. And you know, a lot of people were, I think, were crowning him before he had gotten there. Like a lot of people were like, oh, the aviator, this is. But as an actor watching him, I 
knew that he wasn't there yet. Like you, you, you know, when someone is there intrinsically, if you are, you know, drawn to a profession or you're connected to that profession, you know, when someone's hundred percent there, some people who don't do it for a living or don't do it at all, don't see the nuances of it all. And he wasn't quite there in aviator, just like Tom Cruise wasn't quite there and born on the 4th of July. He was on his way. And I think, Right, he has gotten there over the last few films. Certainly in this film, just a phenomenal performance, as you mentioned earlier. Django, Revenant. The, he's just next level. I'm looking forward to Killers of the Flower Moon, which is coming out later on this year on, on Apple. I'm so in love with him as an actor. You know what? I'm so in love with him as an actor that lately I found myself getting upset by people who joke about him dating these 25 year old girls or whatever. Like, dude, it's a free fucking country. They're all adults. Let them do whatever the fuck they want to do. And I bet a lot of the women complaining about him dating a 25-year-old, if they were 25 and DiCaprio was hitting on him, they would absolutely go on a date with this guy. So it's just a different approach in my mind. I don't understand the criticism. I just kind of I, I kind of fallen in love with DiCaprio as an actor that I kind of want to defend him from that kind of stuff because I really enjoy the work he's doing and what he's bringing to the screen. I don't even think he was there in Gangs in New York yet. He was still on his way. Yep, I and agree. He, yeah, and then he got there over the last few films and – Certainly, he brings that struggle for himself, the natural insecurities an actor would have, to light for Rick Dalton. It is all there in that trailer, man. Any, I think any performer or creative person has had that moment in the trailer by themselves, kicking themselves for blowing a meeting, oh, yeah. blowing a pitch, blowing a scene, uh, blowing an opportunity. It's all there in that moment, and you feel that on a visceral level if you're any kind of creative person. I, I told you mine on uh, from the Star Trek podcast, right? Right, right, right. No, oh no, go ahead. Which is, we went to, we had Walter Koenig on the show. Yes. It was our biggest guest. It was the middle of the pandemic. We went to his house. We recorded. I got there and I realized I did not have my headphones. And I went, that's okay. I've got meters on the thing because I didn't want to run out and right. you know, I couldn't leave. Right. And so a quarter, I'm watching the meters. They're bouncing up and down. Everything's good. I get home and I listen look at the thing and there are two tracks there's a scott mance track and a steve morris track i didn't turn his mic on oh my god the you know you, you we talked about like like you you know you, that i don't really talk to myself and you do talk oh, to yourself out yeah, loud time. this time i was literally sitting in this chair right where i am right now swearing i couldn't even i i mean like it was the biggest fuck up i've ever like just yeah. huge, huge, the biggest guest we've had. I didn't record his audio. And, but you could hear a little bit of his audio on Scott's mic in the yeah. background. And so I called up my friend who has been on the show, John Grieber at yeah. uh, Skywalker Sound yeah, and said, please tell me you could save me. And Skywalker Sound recovered Walter Koenig's audio. Wow. Yep. Well, call in Thank the big God. friends. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, his performance is so good. And look, Brad Pitt deserved the Oscar for sure. He was damn good in the role of Cliff. Oh, he's great. But, but DiCaprio is so good in this movie, so fantastic. He's the one I connect to the most. I mean, I enjoy watching Cliff, but I understand Rick, <laughs> sadly. Yeah. So it's uh, there's the, such a connective tissue there. I think the difference between Brad uh, the Brad Pitt performance and the Leonardo DiCaprio performance is the difference between a movie star and an actor. Yeah. And not yeah. and not that I don't think Brad Pitt's a good actor. I I do, but he's just walking yeah. around oozing his charisma and being solid and there. Yeah. The layers in Leo's performance are so complicated and there's so much going on. You Absolutely. know? Absolutely.
Um, any, um, I mean, we're at an hour and uh, what, 15, 18 minutes. Um, any, anything more that you want to bring up, Steve, that I didn't bring up or I haven't talked about? We talked about the ending. We talked about the Bruce Lee. We talked about the thrust of the movie. Uh, Sharon Tate, uh, DiCaprio, Brad Pitt. Is there anything we're missing from this movie? So, Pacino, hoo-ha. no, are we missing Pacino's anybody? really good. Pacino's really good. Like um, it. you know, it's 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 a good scene. Mm-hmm. Um, the I want to talk about them a little more about the Mansons. First yeah, of all, please. we have that scene in the car, yeah, that is very sexual, and again, it goes to this sort of the, the women in this movie are the angelic Margot Robbie, right. the you know, mean battering wife of Cliff, right. the stu- you know, Zoe Bell, the Kurt Russell's wife, who's, who's also angry, mean and angry and battering, mean and angry. Yeah. And then this totally sexualized and uh, every interaction that they have. And I forget what's the actress that plays her, the, uh, that well, gets Margaret in the car Pauly, with that's, um, is it Susan, Sar- Susan Sarandon's daughter? I think. Yeah. Every interaction with her is amazing. I think. Yeah when they just the their eye connection and then they see each other again and the drive in the car that's all amazing yes. and i i think all the thing at the ranch and all the bruce dirt stuff is so beautifully oh, odd she's, and creepy she's andy mcdowell's daughter sorry i don't ah, get raked for that yes so you could totally see that yes. um it's all creep all, all the stuff at the ranch is is interesting and creepy and weird um and I and I wish there was more of it. I think it would it would lessen our problems at the end of the movie if we have more of the Mansons in the movie. Yeah, I thought he did a great job of showing you the Manson family, and there was that tension and stress when he's at the ranch. But at the end of the day, Bruce Dern comes out and says, no, "They're taking care of me. They're fine." And that's literally what happened in real life. George Spahn, Squeaky Frome was there to take care of any of his needs, sexual or otherwise. Uh, that was detailed in the books about the Manson family. And I, you know, I've extensively read about the Manson family, watched yeah. document. I was so into that in, in the nineties uh, there, I would read all kinds of stuff on the Manson family. It's pretty creepy. The Vincent Bugliosa book, uh, when he was the prosecutor. Helter Skelter, yeah. yeah. Helter Skelter. Great book. Uh, if you want to book about freaked that. me out, by the way, it re- <sighs> I mean, that is Manson's are scary. They did the TV movie on that. And it was just as freaky as the book. Oh. So it was intense. That TV movie, when you're seeing all of that so so i that's the thing that i get at is the and, and and that's what i mean i'm very knowledgeable of the manson family so i can look at this and go i could have easily fallen into the trap of like well they got what they deserve because i know what happens with the manson family but i didn't because you didn't show it to me on screen show it to me on screen and i would have been able to be a hundred percent behind the whole situation but yeah um uh, the way they portray and the way tarantino uh, shows them i think is is very well done and uh you know that's why when brad pitt has that moment with clem and just absolutely just demolishes the guy i think it's fair because the guy stabbed his car stabbed the tire in his car and they're in essence it's it's kind of creepy they're trying to maybe trap him in the situation and he is in essence um uh castrates that entire crew even though there are women in there so you know just you know takes them out at the knees by having by having him destroy Clem and having him change the tire right in front of them, you know, so you can understand their anger towards him for embarrassing them, but they're still kids. It's just a different kind of approach think, to it all. But I, I think it. my rule, if I if our teaching screenwriting, real quick, sorry, Steve, what yeah. I would have liked more Charles Manson. Let me, me see more Charles Manson in this movie to build up the fear factor of this movie. I think for me, the rule, if I were teaching a screenwriting class, mm. is special knowledge that an audience might bring to a movie 
can enhance the movie going experience, but it shouldn't be necessary to the movie going experience. Right, right. Is that is that you shouldn't I shouldn't have to know anything about the Mansons. I do know about the Mansons, but right. I shouldn't have to because the movie should be telling me everything that I need to know to enjoy the movie. If it isn't, then there's a and and this gets into this weird sort of when you're at Tarantino level yeah. and skill level, well, you can you can ignore those rules to some degree, and and obviously. For a huge group and a, a, a good percentage of the people that are listening, that totally worked, you know. Yeah. And yeah. and for you and me, it worked less, you know. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um. What was the? Uh, oh God. Oh, movie. You want to teach Quinn Tarantino no. about screenwriting? Oh come no, on. movie ace. I teach film school. <laughs> yeah, I teach 18, 19, 22-year-old I teach in an MFA class on screenwriting. I'm not teaching Tarantino about screenwriting. Oh, God. Some of you all, I don't understand what's wrong with some of y'all. Like, well, what are you what are you guys so angry about? Like, what? Like, honestly, what are you so angry about? We're discussing the film. We're analyzing film, the film. We're breaking it down. We wouldn't take time to break it down and have analyze about the film if we didn't like the film. And maybe maybe we should say, but we I think we were very positive about the film at the beginning before we got into a couple of things. I think we're allowed I find to find it captivating. Yeah, yeah, I think we're allowed to balance out our criticisms along with our enjoyment of the film. So I just I, I was I was just so weirded out by people who take it so personal. We're not a fan, we're not coming after you but, personally. It's but this it's it's so funny. I, I know I said to you when I started doing the Star Trek show that mm-hmm. I went, oh, Star Trek fans are different. They're yeah, very yeah. knowledgeable. They have a lot to say, and they want to say it, and that's yeah. awesome, and it's really cool. You you know from your many years that you know Zack Snyder fans are different. Yes, yes. Pete, Quentin Tarantino has very very passionate fans. His movies yeah. elicit strong. They're I mean, you look at his movies. Of course, they're going to elicit strong responses. Yeah, that's yeah. what they are. That's what they're supposed to do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, all right. Anything else? Uh, I think we had a stream that came through here from Justin Toner. He says, hi, John and Steve. Great discussion of the film today. I agree with your take on the Bruce Lee scene as a fan of Bruce myself. I'm working my way through Reservoir Dogs now. Was hoping you would do Jackie Brown, but there is always next time. Thanks, guys. Yeah, Jackie's an interesting film, and I think we would look at it down the road, right, Steve? Because it's so, it's so dialogue heavy. Um. I have only seen Jackie Brown once and I don't have the best memory of it. So okay. I, I don't, I, I liked it. I don't have, I, I didn't have a strong reaction. Mm-hmm. I've also seen a lot of people that felt Jackie Brown was a bit of a sleeper and it took them two or three watches mm. and then it became their favorite Tarantino. So yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's also interesting because Tarantino is a filmmaker who's made, you know, comparatively few films mm-hmm. that we've done half his movies at this point. Oh. Yeah, good point. Good you know, point. which, yeah. you know, when we, Spike Lee started just a few years before Tarantino. We haven't done anywhere near half his movies. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and I do want to be fair about the woman thing to wrap it up. Um, the actress who plays the little girl, she, th- that female, th- that is one woman comes off or one uh, female who comes off in a very strong way in the movie, for sure. She's confident. Is it Butters? Julia Butters, I think is her name. She's confident. She's on top of things. And she reinvigorates Rick and then compliments him afterwards, which, of course, draws the greatest tear that you might yeah. have seen on film ever from anybody. So, yep. yeah, she does a fantastic job. I think that's her name, Julia Butters. But, yeah, Julia Butters. But she does a fantastic job as Trudy awesome. So, yeah, that's one positive female energy in the film for sure. Yeah. Um, all right. Any, uh, and she's in The Fablemans as well, by the way, ladies and gentlemen. So 
Uh, oh, who's she in the Fable? She's Reggie Fableman. She's I think she's one of the sisters. So oh, that's so interesting. There you go. Um, all right, so let's wrap it up there, Steve. No more Streamlabs or, or super chats for us to get to. So let's uh, wrap it up there. As we're hitting in the hour and a half mark, we don't usually like to let, let this one go more than ninety minutes. Any final thoughts on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as as we um, a bit ado to this particular film for now? Well, despite all the criticisms and all the passion, uh, I'm going to go back to what I said at the very beginning. I I find it moment to moment, scene to scene, absolutely captivating. The, yes. the 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 creation of the world of the '70s is, or the late '60s, early '70s is amazing. Yeah. The performances, particularly Leonardo DiCaprio, is amazing. Brad Pitt is the essence of cool. Margot Robbie, yes, I do fall in love with her watching her in the film, despite the fact that I don't understand the point. <laughs> I. I and I think the Mansons are creepy. I think everything in it is really, really well done. I just, part of me just is kind of like, what, what was this movie about? Why was I, what was the point of this? That's where it kind of falls flat for me. But I totally enjoy it the whole time. Yeah, yeah. I, I really enjoyed the movie because I like how he captures this time in Hollywood, this particular time and what was happening. And not just in Hollywood, but in the world how people were transitioning, what the looks were, the fashion, the style, the approaches in conversation, the way they kind of handled things and what, and what have you. I, I enjoyed that. And then diving into this relationship between Cliff Booth and Rick Dalton. Look, I think it's great to have characters that challenge you and you wonder if you should like this person or not like this person or cheer for this person or have questions about within yourself whether I should be liking this person or not. That's good screenwriting. That's good film directing. And that's good filmmaking. And I like that we have this with Cliff Booth and Rick Dalton because why should I care about an actor who's desperately trying to stay relevant? Why? Well, give me something more and it's there. We, we kind of connect with DiCaprio and what he's going through. We, we sense and feel that we have connective tissues to the things that he's going through in our own lives. You know, we've had our own ups and downs, our own desires to stay in certain levels and what have you. And so I like that you have that here. And then with Cliff Booth, you've got this really interesting, cool guy who at times lets his anger get the best of him. And most of the times it works. Other times you're a little upset by it. And I like that, that that's an aspect of it all. I enjoy Margot Robbie in the film as well. I like Pacino. I like the different characters. Jay Sebring, all these different characters that pop up through the movie. He does a great job of laying the groundwork of showing everybody here and the world that was existing at that time. And as Steve said, the Manson family as well. You get the appropriate amount of creepiness from this Manson family. I just wanted a little bit something more. You know, I saw somebody saying, I like them lurking around, but because you know about the Manson family, so you're doing the work, not Tarantino. And that shouldn't be the way it is. So that, that, those are, that's my criticism of the movie. But other than that, I think it's incredibly well shot, phenomenally well written. I enjoy the, a lot of the, as an actor, these scenes are just like fucking candy, catnip uh, to a cat. It's so great to see that kind of stuff. Uh, and it, but uh, you know that ending is the only thing that I would take away that takes away from enjoying the movie overall. But by the end of the film, when they have that final scene with them and they've kind of come back together with Dalton, it's a really good ending for me. And I like that uh, we're moving forward in their lives and what have you. So yeah, overall, a really good film with just a, a few nitpicks uh, overall. But yeah, a good one. Um, all right, well there you go. Thanks everybody for joining us for this breakdown of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood here on the Cinephiles Live. We appreciate you all hanging out with us on a Sunday morning. We had up to 75 of you hanging out with us. So thank you so much for taking time uh, to have this discussion with us. We appreciate the lively chat. Whether you're passionate or, um, uh, or in support of what we're saying or not in support of what we're saying, we appreciate a lively chat. It's always good Film should be discussed 
in this way. And I, and we appreciate the fact that you guys have done that, Steve, oh, what do we have to tell them about the things they can uh, look forward to or how they can follow us or where they can get our stuff? Well, I want to repeat what you said at the very top of the show, which is patreon.com slash the cinephiles is the best way you can support our show. We're going to, we're figuring out a new watch along. There was a name of a movie that came up that might yeah. be that, yeah. Uh, that's going to happen uh, very soon. We always put out cinephile shorts every week. In fact, there's a really, really good one, I think, coming out either this week or next week, which mm -hmm. is a deep conversation you and I had about some stuff, some serious stuff. It was a really good conversation. If you want to buy or stream Once Upon a Time with Hollywood or every other movie we've ever reviewed, you can do so at cinephiles.net. And you can follow me at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. And hey, go check out uh, Gamesters of Triskillian if you want to hear Walter Koenig's voice saved by Skywalker sound on Enterprise Incidents. <laughs> oh, there you go. Very well said. <laughs> hey, as for me, you can follow me at The Roca Says on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, uh, The Outlaw Nation on Twitch, my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash John Roca Says, where we just reviewed um where i just reviewed creed 3 we just reviewed the most recent ep uh, episode of picard and, and we jumped into the mandalorian this week so there's a lot of their uh, stuff there that you all can enjoy plus the hot mic with me and jeff snyder burning up hollywood like crazy with our show every week uh go and take advantage of listening to all that but number one as steve said here the patreon come and be a supporter patreon.com slash the cinephiles a lot of benefits for you we'd love to have you come aboard and hang out with us and support all we're doing here on the Cinephiles. All right, y'all take care of yourselves. Have a fantastic Sunday. Look for our part one of Django Unchained coming out next week, right, Steve? That's correct. On your on wherever you download podcasts, and we will talk to you next time with another brand new episode here of the Cinephiles Live. Take care, everyone.